Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. You guys kill me. I th- every, you know, you do this every once in a while, just when you think, okay, it's coming to an end. Oh, psych, our God will not be. It's almost as if the song itself is a parable, right? That just when we think the music fades, just when we think the light has dimmed, nope, nope, our God will not be moved. Will not be moved. Our God, our help in ages past, will be our hope for years to come. And that's, well, that's a truth worth building a lifetime upon, right? I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles with me, please, to Genesis chapter 49 and 50. Today, we finish Genesis. Today, we conclude our sermon series on Joseph. And as you find your way there, we're going to be marching as has been our custom. We're going to be marching through several places in chapter 49 and in chapter 50. But to begin, a deep breath and a prayer. God, we now turn our attention to your sacred and holy word. And we recognize there is much that deserves our attention even now. So much to think about this past week. So many things ahead this coming week. We, we confess that. But not right now. Will you show us how to create sacred space in the soul where you, through your spirit, will teach us something, will transform something in our minds, in our hearts. We pray that you would remove the burden that may be resting upon the shoulders of any worshiper in this place so that each of us and all of us are free to commune with you in the study of your sacred word. This time is yours. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. It was several years ago, and I was serving a church in Tennessee, and I got a phone call from the funeral home. He said, Pastor, we have a woman who has died, and she has nobody in town. Her family, well, they're all grown, and they've moved away to different cities, and she's not part of a church. She doesn't have a community of faith. She's not, she really knows nobody here, but we have her her graveside service this weekend, would you mind leading that service? Of course, no problem. So I met them on, I think, Saturday, early to late afternoon. We met there at Green Hill Cemetery. I showed up, and the family was all there, maybe about eight of them, eight people, eight grown kids, a couple of grandkids, cousins. And there was the urn. The urn was going to be interred there were her remains right there waiting. 
I come up and I begin the service as you do when you have never met the person. When you don't know who it is you're burying, you, you begin with, well, here's, let's see, here, here's, here's a word, here's a passage of scripture, here's a prayer, some framing words of comfort. But then somewhere in there you have to confess, I don't know her. So I say to the family, you know what, maybe the best and most respectful thing I can say to you is that I did not know your mom. Would you tell me about her? I mean, can we do that just now? Can, can we right here on what will be her final resting space, a sacred ground, can we just lift up her life and honor it together? Why don't you tell me something about your mom? And then there was this kind of silence. And it became a little bit awkward. So I said, well, anything is fine. You know, just maybe part of her character, maybe a memory that you have with her. Just tell me anything about her just so I can maybe get to know her. And then the oldest son, I think his name was Michael, said, well, I'll go. I said, great, great, Michael. Go ahead. What, tell me about your mother. He thought for a moment and he said, well, mama was mean. <laughs> what? I said more he said no I mean she growing up it was tough she was mean she's always in a bad mood she was really strict on her really tough and yeah and that was it I said okay uh, anybody else thinking maybe you know he's he's that one you know and so then sooner or later a the little sister, she spoke up and she said, I'll go. She said, well, Michael's right. Mama was mean. <laughs> I, I kid you not, we went about three siblings deep into this narrative and the only thing I knew was that this woman was mean. By the end, after nothing else was offered up, do you know what I had to do? I just had to say, wow. You know, this family, you, you're going to make it. You give me great hope. And then they laughed out loud. They say, yeah, right. What do you mean by that? And I said, no, 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 you really do. You give me great hope because here it is. You've gone through something, and yet you've come to a place where you're able to point to the something and say, you know, that was that. This is now, and let's move forward. So do you realize how many people never get to that place where they're able to own it, to point to it, to name it and say, let's move forward? I said, that's strong so what do you say um i just offer a prayer and we go home and they said that'd be great and we did funerals are interesting funerals really are the common ground for all humans because death is the common denominator. I don't care where you go or where you've been or what you've done or who, who your mama and daddy were. When you go to a funeral, you can't go to a funeral and not think about your own mortality. I mean, it's the common ground. Funerals have a way of getting real, real fast. And just like that day on the side of Green Hill Cemetery, every funeral that any of us have ever been a part of, there is a moment somewhere along the way where it gets, it gets real. You begin to think about where you are and how one day you will be the one 
that others have come to see. And who will come? When will it be? How many days do I have left? Years do I have left? Months. And I say that today because at a funeral, (laughs) it gets real and it gets raw. And I say that because the, the book of Genesis concludes with a funeral. And at this funeral, the end of the book of Genesis, it gets real and it gets raw. And I wonder if for just a few minutes while we're here and gathered around this, these final two chapters, if you and I can live into the real and into the raw of this final funeral, we may be able to find something that speaks so closely to our own place in life that it gives us hope. It gives us something to believe in. Here's the deal. Jacob is dying. Jacob, the patriarch, who has 12 sons, has a daughter. Jacob, the one who we studied for a long time. We've been with Joseph for a long time now, but Jacob now is old and ill and is dying. And the very first verse of chapter 49 tells us, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather around that I may tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. And in the verses that follow, Jacob does something really special. One by one, he begins to address each of his sons, starting with the oldest and moving to the youngest, and he speaks words into their lives based on what he knows of each of them. He starts with Reuben, and he says, Reuben, And I'm paraphrasing. Here's what I know about you. I've been watching you for a long time. This is how you think. This is how you behave. And because this is just kind of who you are, this is going to be your future. And he goes on to bless him. Simeon, I've watched you a long time. From the time that you were young, I've seen this is how you think. This is how you behave. This is how you interact with people. Here are your strengths and here are your weaknesses And because of this is part of who you are, this is what your future is going to look like. And he blesses him. Levi, etc., etc. In fact, it goes on into some beautiful language because here the patriarch is taking the last opportunity he has to speak blessing into each particular unique individual based on what he has seen in them. One place is quite special. When he talks to Judah... You know, don't forget, Judah is the one from whom the the tribe of Judah will emerge and grow. It's the tribe of Judah from which King David will emerge. It's the line of King David from which Jesus the Christ will emerge. So way back before any of that happens, Jacob says to Judah, right here in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, check out the language, nor the ruler's staff from his feet until tribute comes to him and the obedience of peoples is his. Now watch. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washes his garments in wine and his robe in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Can you hear the Eucharistic language. 
Can you hear the Lord's Supper images begin to emerge? Wine, grapes. Do you remember the story in the life of Jesus when he is about to enter into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday? He's about to enter into Jerusalem and he sends his disciples, go and find a foal, a donkey's colt that I may ride upon it. And here we have this image of Jesus who we will later call the true vine riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And right here before all that happens, here's images that the New Testament then reaches back and pulls forward to describe what in the world is going on in this person we call Jesus the Christ. It's just gorgeous. But all through each of these blessings, he speaks to each one of his sons uniquely and specifically, right? Which is curious to me. We have already said that when he was paying attention to Joseph growing up, it was the father, Jacob, who was the only one who could see, really see, Joseph. He saw from the time that he was a toddler, from the time he was eating Kleenex in the pastor's study. He he saw from the time that he was young that this kid had a a vibrant, multicolored soul. And so he gave him some threads to match on the outside what his father saw in him on the inside. But what this passage all through chapter 49 demonstrates is that Jacob saw not only Joseph, but Jacob saw each of his kids. And isn't that our goal? If we are blessed to have children or grandchildren, isn't it the goal that we see each for who each of them is? A few weeks ago, Mother's Day, we had breakfast with some of you who dedicated a baby. And that breakfast, we talked about how uniquely everyone who was dedicating a baby that day, this was their second baby. This wasn't their first go-around. It wasn't their first rodeo. And so we talked about the uniqueness of loving each child specifically and differently. And I told a story about how when we were young and we had two young boys, and or when I was young, Laura's still young, but clearly, I mean, but... But when I was younger and we had these two boys and then it was two years old and four years old and we'd go to the playground. I've told some of you this. We'd go to the playground and I put, you know, Nathan who was, you know, four in the big boy swing because he's ready and then Jackson was two and so we had to put him in the toddler seat because, you know, at two you're still kind of, your head's like heavier than the rest of your body and so you, you know, you kind of, so you had to strap him in. And so I'm, I'm, I'm swinging one, and he's going higher and higher, and I'm going faster with him. But with the other one, I have to gently kind of do a different pace at the same time. And I find myself doing this and this, this and this at two different paces. And I thought, is that not parenthood? Because you, you love one kid for the unique situation in life that God has created them to be. But you love the other kid for the unique situation in life that God has created them to be. And it takes different energies, and, and, but that's what it takes to see, to see. Because Proverbs 22nd, the 22nd verse of Proverbs puts it this way, raise up children in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. But we've discussed already that that verse really specifically means this, raise up each unique, distinct individual child in the way that that unique, distinct individual child should go. And when that unique, distinct individual child is old, that unique, distinct individual child will not grow from it. 
Jacob sees all of his kids and he names each one of them. And he gets to the end of all these blessings and the last verse of the chapter reads thus. In chapter 49, chapter 49, verse 33. When Jacob ended his charge to his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. The phrase that draws my attention in that verse is breathed his last. Jacob breathed a lot of breaths in his journey. His first breath when he was born and the handmaiden had to rub his chest or spank him on the rear end to get the oxygen moving, to get the lungs opened up, it was his first breath that he breathed when he was still hanging on to the heel of his brother. Remember that? Breathing while conniving. I think about other breaths that Jacob breathed, not his last, but the many others. The breath that he breathed when his brother came in as they are older and his brother said, hey, give me some of that stuff that you're cooking. And he used breath to manipulate his brother. Give me your birthright, and I'll give you the porridge. I think about other breaths later on when he's older and his mother comes to him and says, I think there's a way to steal your brother's blessing. And so he dresses up like Esau, puts fur on his arms and goes into his father and maybe holds his breath. <gasps> until his father says, Esau, is that you? And he says, by using breath to lie, of course it's me. Feel my arm. I've made your favorite meal. I think about the breath that he used when he was running away from Esau. When he was running away from Laban, maybe out of breath. I think about the last night before he rekindled with Esau. And he's wrestling the stranger in the night. He's wrestling so intensely that he's out of breath. He's exhausted. God touches his hip and he walks with a limp. For the rest of his life. Right? Jacob breathed a lot of breaths. But here at the end we're told that when he breathed his last, it was to speak blessing and hope and life into those whom he loved. What what fascinates me about this phrase, he breathed his last, is that at the end of Genesis, we hear about breathing. But at the beginning of Genesis is where we started hearing about breathing. Because in Genesis 1, 1, when there was nothing and the universe itself was unformed, the ancient writer says it was over this watery chaos that God and God's ruach, his spirit, his presence, his breath, blew over the face of the deep and began to separate things, separated wet things from dry things, and separated light things from dark things, and the breath of God began to speak creation into being, and life and beauty and community into being, and God said things with his breath, let there be, let there be, let there be. And then and maybe my favorite of the two creation accounts, Genesis 2. 
God leans over into the mud and scoops up the first mud man. And out of the dirt, out of the clay, he leans over and his own nostril to the nostril of the human, aff to aff, breathes God's breath. And the first mortal is able to share something with God that now we can do something that God can do. We can speak life and we can create and we can breathe beauty into the world. And the truth is, all of life is borrowed breath. And when we die, we give back our borrowed breath. Can I get you to do something for just a moment? Right where you are, just sitting right where you are, take a deep and cleansing breath. Just fill it up. And breathe it out. You only have a certain number of those. What will you do with them? Because you can use your limited number of breaths to break down, to destroy, to gossip, to hate, to despise, to lie, to manipulate. You can. You can use breath to do all of those destructive things or you can recognize that the thing that's in your lungs is more than just oxygen. It's the life of God. And you can do some of the stuff God does. <laughs> because God made it that way, you can breathe life and love and reconciliation and grace. You can breathe worlds into being and you can repair the worlds that have been breached with your breath. At the end of his life, Jacob's message to you and me is breathe life while life lasts. And then he died. And after he died, then it was time for the funeral, the planning, the phone calls, the arrangements. And because Joseph was so influential in the empire because of his position with Pharaoh. He had some influence. He had some power. He goes to Pharaoh and he says to Pharaoh, you know I can't bury him here, right? And Pharaoh says, yeah, I get that. That's a gross, you know, paraphrase, but he says, yeah. And so he organizes a processional and he uses all of the resources at his disposal, chariots, charioteers, and the text ends up saying, the verse is, it was a great, great company. Now that's a processional. They go all the way into Canaan across the river for the burial. You know, there is a way to show up at a funeral with some class. And there's a way to show up without it. Years ago, at another funeral, and listen, I've got some funeral stories. We had a new funeral home come to town. Do you remember this, babe? Brand new funeral. Brand new fleet of cars with it. Beautiful cars. Uh, Cadillac, uh, what's the big SUV Cadillac? Escalade was the family car. They had limousines. It was gorgeous. Brand new facility. 
And I was to lead the procession because the pastor leads the procession to the final resting spot. I was driving a two-door Saturn coupe at the time. (laughs) And the night before, my tire was flat. So I had put the donut wheel (laughs) on the front right wheel. And I didn't have time to get it fixed, so I go to the funeral home, and I show up, and the funeral director comes out, and I'm lined up. And, you know, if, if, there was, if it was a movie, if you were panning across the, from the back to the front, you know, you're looking at, you know, you're looking at these beautiful, and you get to mine. So he says to me, comes up to me, and he says, some of you got that. He says to me, would, would you like to ride in the family car? <laughs> I said, no, I would not. I'm the pastor, and I will lead them to their final resting spot. So we, you know, we rode to the... <laughs> there is a way to show up with class, um, and there's a way not to. Listen, another time I was doing a funeral, and it was in the middle of... Uh, you know, East Tennessee, big, you know, county fields. And there was this, uh, this the cemetery out in very rural county. There a very rural county, spot in the county. It was at the time of year where the temperature just felt great. The, the, the corn was tall. The roads were winding. And so you don't, when you're winding those country roads, the corn is so tall, you don't know what's around the other corner. You don't know really what's there, but it it felt so great outside that I had the windows to the Saturn down. I had the tire fixed, but I had the windows to the Saturn down, and I was jamming. I was, you know what I was listening to? Otis. I was listening, yeah. I was listening to Otis Redding, because at the time, this was my favorite song, because I would sing this song to my boys, try a little tenderness. And I would sing this song to the boys because, really, Try a Little Tenderness is a song by a man sung to a man about how to treat a woman. And so by the time they were young, as babies, I would sing this, just sing along with Otis, right? And so I'm driving through the... I just want to be quiet and listen for a minute, don't you? I'm driving to the countryside, and the windows are down. There's a breeze going. I'm just kind of cruising on my way to the graveside. You know she's waiting. Waiting, yes. The corn is tall. You don't know what's around the next corner. But I got the radio up, Tommy, and I'm singing to the top of my lungs. But you know that this song changes in tempo. Later on, it begins to cook. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets to my favorite part, you know? Uh. All right, knock it off. So now I'm singing at full throat. I mean, veins sticking out my head. You got to, got to, got to. And, and I turn and I make my bender. And the entire funeral is right there listening. I'm there. I'm, 
I have arrived at my destination. <laughs> I quickly turned the, roll the, win <laughs> roll the windows up. I look over and, oh gosh, Mike, the color guard, they were going to do the, the colors. They had rifles. <laughs> and they looked at me, yeah, they looked at me. I got out, I'm so sorry for your loss, you know. Get, there, there is a way to show up with some class, and there's a way not to. And Joseph knew how to show up with class, and this entire entourage shows up, and they have the funeral, and they weep for 70 days. Do you realize that when Pharaoh later dies, they only weep for 77 days? I mean, it's a real deal, and they, they grieve through this time of mourning, and then they come home back to Egypt. It's after the funeral. And we pick up the reading there. Chapter 50, verse 15, we read, Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, What if, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for the wrong that we did to him. So they approached Joseph, saying, Your father gave us this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept. When they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept and fell down before him and said, We are here as your slaves. I told you that strange things happen at funerals. It gets raw and it gets real in a hurry at funerals. And at any kind of funeral, you are constantly aware of all the dynamics going on. There are dynamics at the funeral. And you don't always say them out loud, but they're there because you have family history. You have maybe unresolved tension. You have the thing that happened that nobody wanted to talk about. I mean, at funerals, you can hear some things. Why, she's sitting up here with us. She shouldn't be up here with us. Why in the world would he wear that to the funeral? There's always a little bit of drama at a funeral. But for the brothers of Joseph, now they were afraid. They were afraid because now the father who had died and had been protecting and keeping them at peace with their brother could no longer do that. Maybe now Joseph will take his revenge and kill all of us. See, they had no reason to fear I mean, Joseph had treated them with grace and dignity and mercy from the time that they came looking for relief and he revealed who he was, took his disguise off, and they realized. They had no reason to, but here's the deal. Guilt is a powerful motivator. They had buried something so far down in the soul of them, the secret, you know, about how they treated their brother, about what they did to him. They never confessed it. They never owned up to it and repented of it. Now, a few chapters back, you'll remember a few weeks ago, 
that Joseph, when he was still in disguise, he heard them talking about it. He heard that they were regretting this thing that they had done, but they never owned it. See, in church, when we talk about owning the thing that you did wrong, we have a word for that, don't we? We call it repentance. We call it repentance. When you own the thing that you did wrong and you repent, you turn from that way, you say, you know, this thing that I did, it was wrong, and I own it, I confess it, I don't want to do it again. In fact, repentance is an interesting word. Do you know that in the New Testament, in the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one of the first things that Jesus mentions from his own lips is the word repentance. The word is metanoia. He says, metanoia, he says, he says repent and believe the good news. Metanoia is literally a word that is made up of two Greek words. Now watch this. Meta, meaning above. And nous, or noia, nous, meaning the mind. So literally, metanoia, or the word that we get repentance from, literally means transformed to a higher mind. Transformed to a higher mind. So in the New Testament, when we talk about repenting and changing from our ways, literally it means to be elevated from this current place where our mind is stuck to be lifted up to a higher mind. That's why in Romans chapter 12 we hear these words, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, you finish it, by the renewing of your minds. This is why in Philippians 2 we're heard, we hear Paul saying to us, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, that part of our transformation is a change of mind. But here's the problem with guilt. If we never own up to the thing that we did, if we never confess it, if we never own it, if we never say, I am sorry for it, it remains lodged in the mind in the center of the room. And it's hard to be elevated to a, a transformed higher mind while that thing is still there, stuck in the midst, the middle of the room. See, at home, we have this, this couch in our living room, and it's a sleeper sofa, right? It's heavy. Problem is, all the power outlets that we want to plug stuff into is behind it. And so we can't just, you know, and move it over. You, you got to kind of walk around it, shuffle around the back of it, walk, you know, to plug the thing in. You, you see what I'm, When we don't confess the thing that we've done, it's like a big sleeper sofa in the soul. And if you want to think right, if you want to do relationships right, if you want to have healthy, loving, fruitful relationships, it's hard to have a transformed, elevated mind because you're constantly having to move around this thing that nobody wants to talk about. You're kind of having to scoot around it. There's a word in Greek for around. It's para, para. And when you've got a sleeper sofa in the soul of you, and you've got to keep walking around it, you know what the word is? Paranoia. It is. From para, meaning around, and nous, meaning mind. That unless you purge your mind of the thing, if you don't confess it and own it and say, I did that thing and it was wrong, it was me, it was me, I repent, you can't elevate to a higher level of transformed thought because the sofa couch is still in the soul you got to walk around it. And when you walk around it, here's what happens. That's paranoia, not metanoia. You with me? So when you are living life paranoid, that means you're constantly afraid of the thing 
that's going to happen to you. Afraid of being able to address the thing in the center of the room that should be addressed, but you're afraid because what would happen to me? Henry Nouwen describes what paranoid looks like. He says, paranoid, here's an image, a closed fist and a defensive posture, always ready to fight. Do you know anybody like that? They're constantly afraid of something, constantly ready to fight, to argue, to pick a fight because they are not living inside their right mind. They're living outside and around their centered mind. <laughs> you know, last, I guess, two, three nights ago, two, three nights ago, I had a dream. And I was dreaming that I was still taking martial arts. It's back in my martial arts days, Raj. And in my dream, I'm not kidding you, my instructor is sneaking up behind me. And, and I, I see him sneaking up behind me, but I don't want it in my dream. And so you know what I do? Whap! And knock Laura's block off. <laughs> Laura is in REM sleep. She's enjoying sleep. And then, boom, an elbow right to her. I apologized and then laughed for like 15 minutes. It was, she ought not sneak up on me like that. Henry Nouwen says to be paranoid, to live outside the centered mind, is to constantly be. The brothers of Joseph were paranoid because they had never dealt with the thing at the center. They had never moved the sofa from the center of the family until now. And now we have an account of them falling before Joseph and repenting. Forgive us. They fall before him and kneel, and then Joseph responds with what may be the most beautiful line of Scripture in the whole of the book of Genesis. In verse 19, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. And right there is the culminating verse of the entire Joseph narrative. Of all the things that were done to him, all of those moments of suffering and loneliness and isolation that seemed to have absolutely no redeeming value whatsoever, in this moment, he declares, you know what? God was up to something when I did not recognize that God was up to something. Everything that you intended to do to harm me, God was attempting to turn it, to transform it, to to morph it into something more, God intended it for good. Which is why the anchor verse for us these many weeks has been Romans chapter 8, verse 28. All things sunergumai, or sunergeo, sunergeo. All things synergize together, work together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to God's word. So here's the Here's the, the word, beloved. I don't know what it is that right now, currently, you are facing. Maybe it's nothing, but I doubt it. Everybody has reason at some point or another to be afraid, to not know what the circumstances of our present life are going to look like six months, a year from now. But there's something else you don't know. 
you have no idea what it is that God may be up to in those moments that you feel have absolutely no redeeming value whatsoever. In all things, God works together for good for those who love God and who are called according to God's purpose. Perhaps our most sincere prayer today can be this. God, I don't, I don't know where this goes. I don't know where the relationship goes or how it gets mended. I don't know what my next job option is. I don't know how we're going to fix the thing that broke. I don't know. But what I do know is this. You have never given up on me. And I suspect you won't now. Show me how to live today as if I really believe that tomorrow is in your hands. God, we are grateful to you for our brother Joseph, for our patriarch Jacob. We are thankful for the life lessons that they teach us. But we're thankful even more so, Lord, that you, you work as closely with us as you did with them. That your love is a subversive love. It sneaks up on the evil of this world and transforms it even when the evil is not looking. Show us how to trust that today. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. <laughs>